Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Desire the unadulterated milk of the word like a newborn baby, that you may grow thereby. His divine power has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and magnificent promises, that through these you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption which is in the world through lust. Jesus prayed, Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. Before we begin our study of the word, let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thankful that we have this opportunity now to study your word, to spiritually feed on that which you have provided for us. As the scriptures say that I have just quoted, that we are not to live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We are to feed upon your word, and through the study and assimilation and application of your word, God the Holy Spirit works, and he works to mature us and to teach us and train us that we may serve you. So, Father, we pray that as we continue our study in Ephesians 4.11, that we may come to have a better understanding of why we come to a church like this and why we have a pastor that teaches verse by verse and why all of these things are vital for our own spiritual growth. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're continuing our study in Ephesians chapter 4. We are focusing now on the last part of Ephesians 4.11, and that is the gifted individual that is identified as the pastor-teacher. And so we are focusing on what are the ro- what's the role, what's the responsibility of a pastor-teacher. So in this study, we've been looking at what the Bible teaches about, about shepherds. We look at Ephesians 4.11, we read that he himself, referring to Jesus Christ, that he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. There are basically four people in view here, not five. We'll look at the reasons for that in the coming, coming weeks. And their purpose is to equip the saints to do the work of ministry that they are coaches, they are trainers, you're the team. And my job is to teach you, train you, equip you so that you can uh, serve the Lord in a uh, faithful manner uh, throughout throughout your life. So these gifts are not, these are really gifted individuals, gifted leaders that God has provided uh, for, for the church. As we've looked at this verse, we have talked about the first two, apostles and prophets, and we have seen that these were temporary gifts, foundational gifts. Ephesians 2.20 was a verse we studied a couple of years ago when we went through Ephesians 2 that emphasized the fact that these two gifts were foundational gifts for the building of the body of Christ. 
Now, a foundation for a building is only laid once. You don't relay the foundation every floor. You just do it once. So the ground found the the foundation that's laid at ground level for this edifice called the church, the body of Christ, the universal body of Christ, has one foundation laid, which is the apostles and prophets, and that which they taught, that which they wrote, that is the foundation of the church. So those were temporary gifts. Then we looked at the uh, third one, evangelists, and we saw that this is not uh, primarily a gift of doing personal evangelism, although that's part of it. The primary purpose is what's stated here in this passage. that It is designed to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. So the purpose of those who have the gift of evangelism is to teach and train those who don't have the gift of evangelism to be effective witnesses of the gospel, to be clear in explaining the gospel and helping the, helping others who are not saved to come to a uh, saving understanding of Jesus Christ. So that's the role of the evangelist. And then the last are the, known as, we call it pastor-teacher. There's a couple of different ways you can articulate that pastor hyphen teacher, pastor slash uh, teacher, uh, but they are connected together, and we'll see the reasons for that uh, coming up. And what we've done as we've gone forward is that we have looked at what the Bible teaches about the shepherd, the pastor in the Old Testament. It's not called a pastor. It's not translated that way, but we have a lot that is said about shepherds. And so we see that God is our shepherd, Psalm 23, 1, and that we uh, went to Psalm 23 and we saw what the characteristics of God as our shepherd are, what those characteristics are. And those are what this metaphor focuses on. Not everything that a shepherd does is something that God does. There's an overlap. It's also a metaphor used for political leaders, and it is a metaphor that is brought over from the Old Testament to apply to the leaders in the local, the local church. So we concluded this by looking at our coming to the conclusion that there are several characteristics that are derived from this metaphor in the Old Testament, that a shepherd leads, a shepherd guides, a shepherd feeds with knowledge and understanding, a shepherd is to heal those wounded by sin, and that is not a physical thing, that is spiritual. We have uh, healing, forgiveness, recovery through an understanding of God's grace and, and his word. A uh, shepherd secures, he restores the scattered, he seeks the lost, he protects, and he corrects. Now that is what comes out of an Old Testament study, and we saw this in conclusion with two verses Psalm, I mean, excuse me, Isaiah 40, verse 11. He, meaning God, will feed his flock like a shepherd. So feeding and nourishment are at the real center of what it is that a pastor is to do, what a shepherd is to do. Uh, He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with the young. So we have feeding and leading are primary primary aspects of the role of a shepherd. And uh, Deuteronomy 8.3, this is done through God's word. 
that he might make us know that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word uh, that proceeds from the mouth of God. So last week we began to look at what the Bible teaches about shepherds, pastors in the New Testament. And first of all, we see in the Gospels that Jesus identifies himself as the good shepherd. And human pastors are his under-shepherds. What we're going to see as we look at our passage this morning in John 21 is when Jesus is talking to Peter, he tells Peter that he is to feed my lambs, that he is to tend my sheep and to feed my sheep. What's the word before sheep or lamb? It's the word my. Y'all are Jesus' sheep, not mine. I'm just an under-shepherd. So Christ is the good shepherd, human pastors are the under-shepherds, and we take care of the flock of God, not our flock. In John 10, 11, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. Now, when those Jews in his audience heard him say that, they're immediately connecting that to Psalm 23, 1. The Lord is my shepherd, David wrote. So he's identifying himself with God. It's another One of those I am, there's seven key I am statements in the Gospel of John. And each one of them uh, is a claim to deity because that first, those first two words in the Greek, ego, a me, would be a translation of the name of God, Yahweh, uh, explained by God to Moses in Exodus chapter 4 the one who is, he who is self-existent. That's the main idea within that terminology. So Jesus here makes this claim, I am, ego, a me, which would have been understood by the Pharisees as a claim to deity for which they would want to stone him. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. In John ten fourteen, I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and am known by my own. Hebrews thirteen twenty, uh, he says, uh, we read, Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant. We see here that part of who Jesus is and part of our salvation is related here to resurrection. He is the great shepherd, uh, excuse me, he is the... Uh, one who came forth from the dead, the God of peace, brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead. And then in 1 Peter 2.25, you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And I pointed out last week that in the Greek, there's a grammatical construction here that is called the Granville Sharp Rule, and there's one article before shepherd but it's not repeated before the second noun, overseer. And in that kind of a construction, those two nouns are describing the same same person. And so Jesus is a shepherd, and we'll see this word in a minute, episkopos, which is translated in the Old King James as bishop, but it has that idea of one who has oversight. So they are used, that's what a shepherd does. He has oversight over the flock. Then we went to Acts chapter 20. And this is important because it helps us understand that in the New Testament, there are three terms 
that are used to describe the spiritual leadership of a local church. And we see two of them in this verse, or referenced in this verse, that uh, Paul went uh, to Miletus, and he called for the elders of the church in Ephesus. Now, that doesn't mean there's one church there. There have been several heretical movements down through the centuries that have tried to say, well, there's only supposed to be one church in one location. But there are other passages where the singular noun church, or ecclesia, is used to describe a, co- a group of churches. For example, the church singular in Samaria. Samaria was a region. And so just because it's a singular noun, it doesn't mean that it's talking about only only one one church. And But these leaders are referred to as elders. That's... Uh, uh, here on the left, uh, at, or at the top, I don't have elder here, that's presbyteros. So that's the use for elder, one who is emphasizing maturity. Then down here you have the word overseers, which is the word episkopos. Those are both nouns, but what they are supposed to do is expressed by the verb over here on the bottom right, poimino, to shepherd, to tend, to feed. That's the emphasis there. The word, the noun pastor related to the leader of a church is only used one time, and that's in Ephesians 4.11. But that doesn't mean that that shouldn't call the leader of the church pastor. That's really become, over his history, the tradition of calling the leader of the church the pastor. But technically, that is what the, the elder or the episcopos, uh, the presbyteros or the episcopos are supposed to do is to shepherd or feed the sheep, to tend, tend to them, and we're going to see that in, in our passage. That's, that's the role of the church. So we have these three terms that are used. The elder emphasizes the spiritual maturity of the person in the office. Second, the term bishop or overseer, episcopos, uh, relates to his authority or oversight in that office. Uh, Titus 1.7, it's used uh, as a synonym for elder, which is used in Titus 1.5. So they're, they're, they become somewhat interchangeable terms, referring to the same individual. And then pastor is the role and responsibility to feed the sheep uh, through teaching. This is the same thing that Peter has in 1 Peter 5, 1 and 2. The elders, the presbyteros who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder. And then in verse 2, shepherd the flock. That's the activity of the elder. He is to shepherd. It's the same word, uh, poimino, emphasizing to feed, to tend, to uh, provide spiritual nourishment and they as serving as overseers, that is, episcopal. So the conclusion here is that the role of the pastor is to lead, guide, feed with the word of God, protect and correct through the teaching of God's word. Uh, we have passages like Second uh, Timothy three sixteen and 17 that um, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for what? For teaching for correction, that's what a shepherd does through the word of God, for teaching, for uh, rebuke, 
for which you rebuke through the word of God, rebuke for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So that is the explains our role is to teach the word to do that. So what does the Bible say about feeding the sheep? I want you to open your Bibles to uh, John 21, and we'll go through the passage here. This is really an interesting passage, and I find that often it is not handled correctly for a number of reasons, and part of it has to do with debates over the meaning of the word love, the use of synonyms in this passage, and we'll take a little bit of time to understand that. But it, it's the whole chapter 2 is often broken into two parts, like they're two separate instances. But the second instance, which is our passage, John 21, 15 to 17, grows out of the object lesson when Jesus literally f- cooks a fish breakfast for the disciples and feeds them. So he is demonstrating through his feeding of the disciples what the disciples are to do spiritually in verses 15 through 17. Now, to understand this, it's important, as I've emphasized in everything, to understand the context. Context, context, context. The three laws of Bible study and interpretation are the same as the three laws of real estate. Location, location, location. You know, what is the surrounding context of the passage? And often we misunderstand a lot of Scripture because we don't pay enough attention uh, to the context. So first of all, we have to look at the overall context. And the overall context, we have to deal with the purpose of the gospel. Why did John the Apostle write this gospel? What is his stated purpose for this gospel? In John twenty thirty one, we have it clearly stated, but it's the second half of a sentence. So we have to understand everything that is said here or we'll miss it. In verse 30, after Jesus had uh, talked to Thomas in one of his uh, resurrection appearances, uh, John summarizes it by saying, and truly Jesus did many other signs. Now that word other is an important word. Other than what? Well, the context is the resurrection. So there are seven signs in John plus the eighth sign, which is the resurrection of Christ, which is fundamental to an understanding of the completed work of Christ on the cross. So Jesus did many other signs other than resurrection in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, these what? See, often we just memorize that John twenty thirty one out of context. We don't realize what the these are. These are these signs. That's a demonstrative pronoun referring back to the topic in the previous verse, the other signs that Jesus did. But these signs are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. That's the Hebrew for Christos, Christ, that we have there the Son of God, and that believing or by believing, you may have life in his name. So we have uh, this understanding that, that it is by faith alone in Christ alone that we have eternal life. It's not through ritual. It's not through good works or anything else. Because in the Gospel of John, the word 
or the verb pistuo, which is the word for belief or faith, is used some 95 times, and it's never qualified. You don't see sincere faith. You don't see genuine faith. You don't see continuing faith. It's never modified because faith is faith. You either have it or you don't. You either believe in Christ or you don't believe in Christ. A lot of people make a mistake in thinking that, well, you know, I walked the aisle or I was baptized or whatever, so I'm a Christian, but that's not what the Scripture says. Scripture says you have to believe Christ died on the cross for your sins, and the instant you do that, it's an act of the mind, and God the Father in his omniscience knows what you believe, and you're saved at that instant. And he doesn't forget things, not like some of us do. He will never forget it, and we'll never lose our salvation. So that's the first purpose. And what it has to do with is an explanation of how we get eternal life, how we move from spiritual death to spiritual life. The second purpose of the gospel is stated by Jesus in John 10.10. That's the same passage I quoted from a minute ago because the very next verse is Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. So this is connected to his role as a shepherd. He says, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life, that's one statement, and that they may have it, that is life more abundantly. So he's talking about two things here. He's talking about the acquisition of life. That's what John 20, 31 is talking about. By believing on him, we have eternal life. But this goes beyond that. He comes to give life and to give it abundantly. So the second category of life here has to do with our spiritual life once we're saved. See, when you are born as a human being, you're a a physical infant. What is required is growth, and you get growth through nourishment. You get growth by feeding. And the same is true in our spiritual life, that when we are born again, we are a spiritual infant. But we have to grow. We have to continue to grow. That's Peter learns his lesson from this passage, and in in First um, Peter two two he says that we are to desire. That's the command to desire the unadulterated milk of the word like a newborn baby that you may grow thereby. How do we grow? We grow through the word of God. That's why it's so important. How often do you eat? We eat. Some of us eat too much. We eat two, three, four, five times a day. And that's how we grow. Sometimes we grow too much. But spiritually, you can't grow too much. But we have to feed. And if you ate physically as much as you eat spiritually, some of you would be dead. You would starve to death. We need to eat spiritually regularly on a daily basis. It's not, oh, just something I do on Sunday. If you only ate once a week, yeah, you might realize your diet goals, but before long you'd realize your funeral goals. (laughs) So we have to grow spiritually, and we do that by desiring the sincere or the unadulterated milk of the word. So Jesus talks about offering two things. And that's important for understanding what he's going to say to, to Peter, that, that he's going to focus on the fact that the sheep need to be fed. 
And that is going to be the whole the whole focus here. So what we see this is doing is it, it's illustrated by what happens in the beginning of this um, of this chapter. So John twenty one fifteen, the first of these three verses says, So when they had eaten breakfast I'll come back to that in a minute. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, Simon Barjona, otherwise in English you would say Simon Johnson. Uh, Simon Barjona, do you love me more than these? And Peter said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my lambs. Now, if you just look at that in the English, you miss a lot because what's happening in the Greek is that there's shifting words here, different words for love. And in the three different times, three different questions Jesus asks, he he uses different words for feeding, different words for lambs, and different words for knowledge. So what we see here is that he asks the question, uh, do you love me more than these? And he's asking the question using the first verb at the bottom, agapao which means simply to love, but there's different kinds of love. In Greek, there were at least four different words for, for love. Basically, only two are used in the New Testament. Storge is one that a compound of that is used in one place, but it's either agapao or phileo. And the other verb, the second one, phileo, really has this idea of having affection for, and sometimes it's translated kiss, and, but it has a, a more intimate context. It's an interesting word, uh, word to study. I'm going to give you some summary here from uh, a dictionary, the New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology. And the reason is, is because I, I spent the la- yesterday and this morning and I skimmed through about 20 or 25 different commentaries and I read through several lengthy discussions on these synonyms. Even though I have taught this many times, I always like to go back and read more, learn more, study more. And I ran across this, uh, uh, in a lot of ways it was a good article in the New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology, but he's going to end up making the, coming to the conclusion that a lot of scholars make, and that is it doesn't make any difference. These are just totally interchangeable uh, terms, and I'm going to disagree with that, and there are a lot of outstanding scholars through the centuries who I would agree with, And uh, but today in our world, there's a lot of evangelicals that just want to sort of skip over the distinctiveness of some terms in Scripture. But he makes some really good observations about these words, and he starts off by talking about how these words are used in classical Greek. And he says about phileo that it's the most general word for love or regard with affection. That's in classical Greek, the most general word. Second, he says, it mainly denotes the attraction of people to one another who are close together both inside and outside the family. It includes concern, care, hospitality, also love for things in the sense of being fond of. Ideas related to phileo do not have a clear religious emphasis. This is all in classic. In contrast, agapao in classical Greek is often quite colorless as a word. 
appearing frequently as an alternative to or a synonym with erao, where we get our word erotic, and phileo, meaning to be fond of, treat respectfully, or to be pleased with. On rare occasions, it refers to someone favored by a god. It describes a generous move by one for the sake of the other. Now, those last two sentences are important because it's emphasizing the way we think of agapao as God's love, that it's something that is not earned or deserved. It is a, it's grace. It's based on uh, undeserved favor uh, by God, and it emphasizes in human, in human love the generosity of one who loves another. That's classical Greek, okay? What's interesting is what he says about how this changes in Koine Greek, which is the New Testament. He says, or let me just summarize what we just looked at. What he says is phileo is a general word emphasizing affection, concern, care, and fondness. Agapao is a colorless word and in a religious context emphasizes the favor of a god or a generous, selfless move by one person for the sake of another. Now, when you get into the New Testament, he says, this changes. Agapao is the dominant word instead of phileo. It remains in every case a more limited and colorless word. Now, remember, he said agapao was the limited and colorless word in classical Greek, but when you get into Koine, phileo is the limited and colorless word. If he says the main emphasis of phileo is on love for people who are closely connected, either by blood or by faith. Now, the reason I took the time to do that is to demonstrate that there are distinctions here. It, what you'll find in a lot of scholars is that it is they they don't deal well with the three important questions that need to be addressed. In the case of synonyms, we have to ask, do both words mean exactly the same thing? In other words, are they totally interchangeable? And I would say no, because we'll see this in a minute. Two words that are synonyms, there are things that you would use one for, but you would not use the other one for. Second question is, even in cases where agapao describes the father's love for the son, because there, there's a host of, lit, of verses where you'll have the father loves the son, agapao. And then two chapters later, Jesus says the father loves the son, and he uses the word phileo. And so they conclude that, see, these words are totally interchangeable. They have a lot more evidence than just those two verses. The problem with that is that it denies the idea that every single word in the Scripture is breathed out by God and is distinctive. So why did the Holy Spirit use agapao in this verse and phileo in this verse? Because there's something about the nuance of agapao that is emphasized in this context but over here, something different was to be emphasized. Phileo emphasizes a familial love. So when it says the father loves the son, there's an emphasis that's brought out that it's emphasizing more of that familial love aspect than in the other context. So there's a denial of the, this 
which I think is a is a denial of 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 the inerrancy of Scripture and every word being breathed out breathed out by God. So we have to look at synonyms and first ask the question: Can we see some difference there? And if there's no difference, I find in any language synonyms are not never are not ever one hundred percent identical. There's always some nuanced difference. And the third question is, shouldn't the meaning of agapao and phileo be determined by how John uses them in this gospel? So I did a study and a search, and I couldn't find but one passage where these two words are used within 40 words of each other. That's a pretty broad context. I think I, I broadened it out to within 50 years, 50 uh, words of each other. Because you want to see that that contrast and comparison. Are there any other places where they're used? And the only place where they're used within 50 words of each other is in John 21, 15 to 17. So there's just this assumption that there's not really a difference. Now, to grasp what's going on here, um, I just want to go back a, a minute to, to look briefly at the previous section. Jesus said, uh, and the scripture says, after these things, after he had appeared to the disciples in John 20, he manifested himself again to the disciples on the Sea of Tiberias, and he manifested himself in this way. So you have these disciples that are out in the boat, and they're fishing. You have Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, and the James and John, the sons of Zebedee, along with uh, two other disciples that aren't named. And they're going fishing out on the Sea of Galilee. And so Simon says, oh, I'm, he's getting bored. He says, I'm going to go fishing, and they want to come with him, verse 3. And as they went out, as they were fishing all night, they caught nothing. I relate to that. <laughs> I've been out many times with people who catch a lot of fish, and I catch nothing. I don't know what it is. I never catch anything. So... It's been a fruitless night, but as the dawn comes, Jesus stood on the beach, and the disciples don't recognize him as Jesus. So Jesus calls out to them, and he says, children, you do not have any fish, do you? And they say, no. And then he's going to, uh, so they've been out here fishing, so I've got this picture from the Sea of Galilee of this, um, one of these uh, uh, men who handle the boat getting ready to throw out his fishing net, which is pictured. Yeah, you can see that really well on the, on the slide. So Jesus said, cast the net out on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. So Jesus knows where the food is. That's an important point when you talk about what's the role of the pastor. Too often we have pastors today who don't go to the Lord for the food. They don't know, and they don't know where the food is. But Jesus is the one who tells us we have to go to the Word of God. So cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll be uh, able to draw it. And you were, and they did, and they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. So then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, so the, the disciple whom Jesus loved is how John refers to himself, and uh, he recognizes that it's the Lord and tells Peter. So when Peter realizes that, he immediately takes off his outer garment and jumps into the water and swims to the shore. But the other disciples, 
came in a little boat, for they weren't far from the land. They were about 100 yards away, and they're dragging this net full of fish, which nobody can, can really uh, lift out of the water. When they got to the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it. Where did those fish come from? Uh, they're not the fish that were just caught because that net's still dragging along behind the boat. So Jesus has already caught fish or created fish, or we don't know. But he's got, he's got the food ready to go because Jesus is the one who is ultimately the one who feeds, feeds the sheep. And then so they draw in the net, and it's got 153 there. So that's the backdrop, is that Jesus wants to teach them about feeding, and he has fed them. So in this context, we have four different words that are used and synonyms. So we have two different words for love, two different words for know, two different words for feed, and two different words for sheep. What you're typically going to read in commentaries and from a lot of pastors is that this is just stylistic variation. I don't agree with that. That may be the very, after you've tried eight different options, that may be the very last. But if we believe that God the Holy Spirit is selecting every word, then we have to first address the question, what is the, even if it's minimal, what's the difference between these these two, two words? So synonyms can be words with overlapping meanings like this, where you have, uh, two different words indicated by the yellow circle and the uh, green circle, and there's about a maybe a 50% overlap. But there's a lot of meanings to these two different words that aren't the same. You can also have it expressed like this, where you have one word, and then the second word is a more technical word, that is subsumed under the meaning of the first word. And this is a case that we have here in uh, John 21 when he talks about uh, tending my sheep or feeding my sheep. Feeding my sheep is poimino. It's a broader term. Tending my sheep is bosco, which is a narrower term. Then we have another type of overlap where it's just a minimal overlap. You could also have one where it's about a 95% overlap. And I think that's probably what we have with uh, agapao and phileo, but it's the difference that, that is important. So we have these th- four different words. The word for, uh, you have two different words for knowledge, oida and gnosko. Oida, a lot of times they're, 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 they can be used interchangeably. But oida tends to emphasize an intuitive knowledge or if it's referencing God to his omniscience, whereas gnosko is knowledge that is acquired, knowledge that is learned. And then you have two different words for sheep, uh, arnia and uh, probata, and one relates to lambs, to young, to the young, and the other relates to adults. So in John 21:15 we read so when they had eaten breakfast Jesus said to Simon Peter Simon son of Jonah do you love me more than these 
He's talking about these, these other disciples, because Peter had been a bit arrogant at times that he was the best and he loved the Lord more than anybody else. And so Jesus, after the, he's, he's denied Christ before this crucifixion, in the third appearance of Christ to the disciples, he appears alone to Peter. That's when Peter realizes his, his forgiveness. You'll read commentaries that put it here, but that's not right. Uh, this isn't, a, I have a Bible that entitles this section, Jesus Restores Peter, and that's not right. G- Peter has already met with the Lord, realized his forgiveness, and this is not restoration. This is more of Jesus commissioning him. And he says, uh, Peter says to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. But here he uses phileo, which is a more intimate family term, than what Jesus is saying in terms of agapao. Now, when we look at this, we have to understand another thing about, about the context. Agapao is used 27 times in the Gospel of John. It's used seven times before chapter 13, which means it's used 20 times from 13 to 16. 13 to 16 is talking about the Christian way of life. It's used, uh, agape, the noun, is used seven times, but it's only used one time before chapter 13. So in other words, to understand what what Jesus means when he says, do you love me, we have to understand that what this means is, is not the same as phileo. It has to do with what Jesus has been teaching in John 13 through 16. John 13 through 16, Jesus uses the term, It's not used at all in 17, 18, 19, and 20. Why not? First, he taught about what love was, and then 17 through 19 is he's demonstrating it, first through his high priestly prayer in in, uh, chapter 17, and then by going to the cross and dying for us and the resurrection. So he's coming back now for the first time since 16 to talk about that to asking Peter, do you, do you love me? So let me remind you of a couple of things that are said by Jesus. In John 13, 34 and 35, he said to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, agapao, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. So when he says to Peter, do you love me? He's not saying, do you have an affection for me like a family member? He's saying, are you willing to love me as I have loved you and be willing to give your life for me? And see, he's going to end up making a statement about about Peter in verse 18 that when... Um, when you were younger, you girded yourself and you walked where you wished, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. He'll be martyred. He'll be crucified. So yes, Peter is going to understand what it means to love the Lord, that he will give his life because of his faith in Christ. So Jesus gives that command. John fourteen, fifteen. Jesus said, if you love me, you keep my commandments. So when Jesus is asking Peter, do you love me? He's saying, are you going to keep my commandments? Are you going to follow my leadership? In John 14, 14, 21, he said, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. In verse 23, he says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our 
home with him. In John 14, 24, he says, He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So contextually, when Jesus says, Do you love me? Jesus is saying, Are you going to obey me? Are you willing to give your life for me? Are you uh, going to keep my word? Because he had denied him, and, and he had not done this. So uh, that's what he's asking. So if we paraphrase it, he's saying... Simon, do you love me more than these others? In other words, have you learned the lesson of humility and are you willing to be completely obedient to me? Peter answered and said, yes, Lord, you know from your omniscience, so he uses the word oida, you know from your omniscience that I now have an intimate, intense love for you now that I've been forgiven and understand what grace is all about. That would be how I paraphrase that in the context. So Jesus says, feed my lambs. That word for feed is uh, bosco, which simply has this sense of, of feeding, nourishing, whereas the synonym poimino involves much more. It's the whole responsibility of the shepherd. So he starts off and he just says, feed my lambs. And the lambs here are the arnion, the spiritually young. In verse 16, he comes back, he says to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Still using agapao. Are you willing to obey me? Are you willing to die for me? And he's, um, Simon says to him, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. He hasn't caught the difference yet. And so Jesus says, shepherd my sheep. Now it's poimino to shepherd the whole realm of responsibility of the leader. My sheep, these are adult sheep. In any congregation, you have spiritual babies who are just new believers who haven't learned a lot yet, and you have spiritual mature believers who've been studying the word and living a Christian life for 40, 50, 60 years. So as a pastor, you've got a one-room schoolhouse. You've got to feed the babies, and you have to feed the mature ones. If you aim for the mature ones, there's always a lot there that the babies are going to get. But if you just teach the babies, the mature ones will never grow, never go beyond the level of their teaching. Go back to what took place in one-room schoolhouses in this country 100 to 200 years ago. That's what they did. They would teach, and the younger ones would learn from the older ones. And so you aim at the, at, to get everybody up to that mature level. But if you shoot for keeping everybody just teaching at the first grade level, nobody will get beyond the first grade level. And sadly, that's what happens in most churches. So in this paraphrase of verse 16, Jesus says, Do you love me? Peter said, Yes, Lord, you know from your omniscience, still using oida, that I have an intense, intimate love for you. And Jesus said, Lead my sheep through the teaching of doctrine, to the teaching of your word. And I, I get to that because of what he is using there. You're teaching mature sheep, and they have to learn the word. The word for sheep is probata, which emphasizes all eight ages. And then the last verse, the last question. Now, Jesus says, okay, Simon, son of John, do you phileo me? And Peter's grieved because he asked him the third time, do you love me? And he says to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. 
And then Jesus says, well, tend my sheep. So he shifts back to Bosco, but he's still using uh, uh, probata. So the point of all of this is, as we paraphrase it, Jesus said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you really have this intimate, intense love for me? Peter's grieved because he said to you the third time, do you love me? And Peter replied, Lord, you know all things. You know, now he's saying, you know from experience. You have seen with your own eyes my response to your forgiveness and the change in me because of the resurrection. You have this experiential knowledge of my intense love for you. And so Jesus says, Peter, feed all my sheep. So what's the role of the pastor? It's to feed the sheep. Feed the young ones, feed the old ones. It's to nourish them with the word and also oversee the flock. That's the role of the shepherd. Second Peter 3.18, Peter learned his lesson well. Grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's the issue. We grow not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be reminded of the role and the responsibilities of a pastor because they inform us of what is supposed to be the focal point of any local congregation, and that is the feeding of the sheep, the teaching of the word, because it is only by your word that we grow. Father, we pray that we might always have a hunger and a thirst for your word, that we might not grow weary of growing, weary of eating, because the flip side of the passage that says feed the sheep is that the sheep need to come to be fed. And it's only by feeding on the word that we grow. Father, we pray for anyone who's here, anyone who's listening, anyone who has never trusted Christ as Savior, that they would understand that the path to new life is simply trust in Christ as Savior. Believe that he died on the cross for your sins and you'll have everlasting life. And that as a result of that, we need to grow spiritually. We need to feed on your word. Father, we pray that we will be challenged by these things and that we will not grow slack or grow weary in our spiritual progress. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.